Last Sabbath, we talked about the great cosmic equation. We saw how God has this formula that decides what he can do and what he can't do. Because of our free will, this formula says this is as far as God can go. He can't step over that line. He can step over that line, but he won't step over that line. Because of his love for us, because, of, because he has given us that free will, he will never force us to um, be blessed, essentially is what it is. But we also saw that because of our free will and our power of choice, we can put our will on the side of God's will, and we can actually help him push back the boundaries of that great cosmic equation so that he can bless us more, and also so he can bless others through us more. Then, last Sabbath afternoon, we looked at the question, how can I enjoy God? And we recognized that the key to loving God with all of our heart, with all of our mind, with all of our soul, with all of our strength, is to give God all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, and all of our strength. The only way that God can plant the seed of love in our hearts, deeply in our hearts, is if we give our hearts wholly to Him and allow Him to plant that seed there, and then the love flourishes. We also uh, looked at what that means in practical terms. It all comes down to our choices. The Christian life is like orange juice. Most people like orange juice. Orange juice is delicious. But have you ever eaten a, a bite of a candy bar and then drunk some orange juice? What happens? Has the juice changed? No, but our ability to enjoy that juice has changed dramatically. Now it's sour to us. And it's the same way with the Christian life. By our choices, you and I get to choose how sweet Jesus is to us. Think about that for a second. By our choices, each day, you and I get to choose how sweet Jesus is to us. And by our choices, we can sour our relationship with him. It all comes down to choice. So, now we're going to look at why we find it so difficult to enjoy God. We're going to look at the question, who is my enemy? And then this afternoon, we're going to look at the solution to the enemy problem. So this morning, I'm going to be talking about some bad news. This afternoon is the good news. I really hope you can come for the good news. Before we begin, let's have a word of prayer. <clears throat> Heavenly Father God, thank you so much once again for the privilege of coming into your presence, for the privilege, Father, of giving ourselves wholly to you, so that our bodies are yours, our minds are yours, our words are yours, our money is yours, our time is yours, our energy is yours. We're all yours, Father, and you can do everything you want to do in and through us. Thank you so much, Heavenly Father, for that wonderful blessing, incredible blessing. I pray that you will do whatever it takes in our life to help us to let you do that, to be almighty God in us. Father, God, send your Holy Spirit in a powerful way to our hearts and minds this morning and grant that we may truly learn what you want to teach us, both in our minds and in our hearts. We pray for these things and we thank you for them. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> On one side of the bullfighting ring, there's a skinny little man in a funny little costume. And if he were an Olympic sprinter, he would be able to run 20 miles per hour. 
On the other side of the bullfighting ring is 1,300 pounds of barely restrained fury about to unleash itself on this funny little guy in the funny little costume, and the bull can run twice as fast. The bull is faster, the bull is bigger, the bull is stronger, and the bull almost always loses. What's wrong with that picture? Shouldn't the bull win? By all rights, yes. What's the problem? Well, some of it has to come down to this thing called the red cape. For some reason that we don't necessarily fully understand, the bull has a fixation on this red cape. It wants to destroy the red cape. The problem is this. The red cape can't be hurt. The bull can tear it to shreds. He's not any closer to winning the battle. In fact, the more time that the bull spends trying to shred this cape to pieces, the less able it is to fight its true enemy. But what would happen? Just bear with me for a second. Use your creative imagination. What would happen if one day the bull just decided, hey, you know, it's not about the red cape. It's about that matador. I am going to focus my energies on that matador. What would happen? Just try to imagine that in your head. Oh, wait, there it is right there. Right? The bull would win. <clears throat> the lesson that you and I can learn from this illustration is that it pays to recognize our enemy. And this is very true in the Christian life as well. One of my favorite authors puts it this way. It is only labor in vain to pick leaves off a living tree. The axe must be laid at the root of the tree, and then the leaves will fall off, never to return. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever felt like you spend your life fighting sin and then it goes away and then comes back again and you're just fighting this, this endless battle with sin? My friends, it's because we don't find the root of the problem. We don't let God take care of the root. Because the Bible says that by all rights, you and I should be what? More than conquerors, right? Well, who is my enemy? Who is my true enemy? Of course, the devil comes to mind, right? The Bible says, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. So yes, the devil is an enemy. But there's two things that you and I should know about the devil. One, he's much too powerful for you and I. If we are fighting him directly, we are in serious trouble. The second thing that we should know about the devil is that he is a defeated foe. The Bible says that through death, that Jesus came in the flesh, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. My friends, that is good news. One enemy down. Okay, does God have any other enemies? Does God have any other enemies besides the devil? Yes, he does, and in fact, these enemies are in some ways worse than the devil. And there's about seven billion of them on the planet today. Right? We are God's enemies. We fight him. By nature, we fight God. Paul puts it this way. We know that the law is spiritual, but I am a flesh, sold into bondage to sin. Paul calls the sinful nature the flesh, and he proclaims the mind set on the flesh is what? Hostile. Toward who? God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God, for it is not even able to do so, and those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 
My friends, when Adam sinned, our nature became broken. You know, before Adam and Eve sinned, their natural delight, their, their, their natural pleasure was to do God's will. They, doing God's will was not a problem for them. They wanted to. It was easy. It was natural. But as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, all of a sudden they took on this bent and broken nature and that's been passed down to us where our natural inclination is to go away from God's will. Our natural inclination is to go our own way and do our own thing. And we have become like Adam. And Ellen White tells us that as soon as Adam sinned, he was in harmony with the first great apostate and at war with God. You and I have followed in Adam's footsteps, and we are at war with God. Now, most people recognize that it's cold in the winter, especially around here lately. And we also know that in the summer, it's a lot warmer. But we don't necessarily always understand why we have that difference in temperature between the winter and the summer. Some people think it's because the earth is farther away from the sun during the winter. But that's not actually true. In fact, if you see in this diagram, in January, the earth is closer to the sun than it is in July. So what makes the difference? Why is it so cold in January, even though the earth is closer to the sun? The difference is the tilt of the earth. Notice that in January, the northern hemisphere is tilted away from the sun. And so the sun's powerful rays glance off the earth into space. And most of that wonderful power, that warming power, is wasted. But in the summer, in the summer, the northern hemisphere is tilted towards the sun. And it gets the full impact of those wonderful beams of the sun of righteousness. My friends, by nature, we are tilted away from the Son of Righteousness. By nature, we are in a spiritual winter. The good news is, the good news is, and my friends, this is the most wonderful news, we can choose our tilt. By the power of choice that God has given us, we get to choose our tilt. We are natural enemies of God. We fight Him. But what is the battle that God is fighting? that we are working against him. What is his battle? What is God's ba battle? You might not believe this, but God's battle is to bless us. That's what he does. That is his whole purpose, is to bless us. He battles to do it. The Bible says, as we saw in our scripture reading, the Lord longs to be gracious to you, and he, therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you. How blessed are all those who long for him. Can't you just see in this passage a God who is looking for any excuse to lavish his goodness upon you? A loving Heavenly Father who is eagerly seeking any excuse to bless you to the fullest. And yet we're not blessed because we fight God as he tries to bless us. Have you ever sung that song, There Shall Be Showers of Blessings? Right? Raindrops around us are falling but for the showers we plead. My friends, when it comes to God's blessing, the showers are already falling. And if we're only seeing raindrops, it's because there's a hole in our umbrella. The showers of blessing are already falling. God is lavishing his goodness on all mankind, and the only thing that's keeping him from blessing us to the fullest is our umbrellas that we're holding up, protecting ourselves from God. Why don't we just take those umbrellas down and let him drench us? In his goodness. 
We fight God by nature. We fight God. We are like a paintbrush in the hand of the master painter. And we are squiggling and squirming and we're like a fish out of water. The poor guy is having a hard time painting this masterpiece because we are wiggling around so much. If we would just let him be the master painter, think about what he could do in every aspect of our life. Do we really fight God's blessing? Does that make any sense? Why would we do that? Yes, we do fight God's blessings for two very important reasons. The first reason is, not all of God's blessings are attractive to us, right? A lot of God's blessings include self-denial, self-sacrifice, suffering, tribulation, discomfort for the good of others, right? All these good things. And so a lot of times we fight God because we don't necessarily, we're not necessarily naturally attracted to some of his blessings. But, even those blessings that we do want, even the blessings that we really, really want, we still fight him because we're not always willing to pay the price. We are not always willing to pay the price for the blessings that God has in store for us. We want to be blessed, but we're not always willing to be blessed. You see the distinction there? We want God's goodness, but we're not always willing to let God bless us. Let me give you an example, a practical example. Let's say that uh, we were doing our uh, health surveys in our community, and we go into our nearest burger joint, and we find there a guy who is sitting by himself with a you know, Big Mac and a half a gallon of Coke and a supersized fries. And we walk up to him and we say, hey, we're doing a health survey. Would you mind taking the survey? He says, no problem. I, I'm not doing anything. Go ahead. So we ask him our first question. Do you want to be blessed? And he looks up at us. He says, what kind of question is that? Of course I want to be blessed. Who doesn't want to be blessed? Are you selling something? Right? He's going to be suspicious right away. So no, 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 we're not selling anything. We go to our next question. Do you want to be healthy? There you go again. Of course I want to be healthy. Who doesn't want to be healthy? I want to live long and enjoy my grandchildren. Of course I want to be healthy. So we ask him our third question. Do you want to have lower weight, more energy, less cholesterol, better blood sugar, and lower blood pressure? And what will he say? Yes, 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 and yes. Now ask me a hard question, right? He wants all these things and he wants them very bad. So we ask him our last question. If you want all these things, why are you eating this food? Don't you recognize that this food actually works against every single one of those things that you want so badly? He'll wipe the uh, grease off of his chin. And he'll say quietly, of course I know that. Everybody knows this food isn't healthy. I don't eat this food because it's healthy. I eat it because it tastes so good. Right? My friends, that is your selfish nature's talking. That is what self does. It fights God. It's not always willing to do the things that we want so desperately. And before we give this guy a hard time, you know, we do this a lot ourselves in many different ways. We may want, for example, to have more energy, but not want to feel the burn of exercise. We may want to have healthy friendships, but not be willing to give up the juicy gossip. We may want to be out of debt, but not be willing to curb our spending. In a thousand different ways, we may want God's blessings, truly want them, but not be willing to let him do whatever it takes to give us those blessings. And if that's true in the temporal realm, it's doubly true in the spiritual realm. My friends, you know and I know that we are in a church that is desperately in need of revival and reformation. 
We also know that the Holy Spirit is the only way that's going to happen. And we plead for the Holy Spirit. We want the Holy Spirit. We pray for the Holy Spirit. Do you know why we don't receive the Holy Spirit? If all were willing, all would be filled with the Holy Spirit. My friends, we truly do want the Holy Spirit. But we're not always willing to pay the price. We're not always willing for the radical commitment that such a filling of the Holy Spirit requires. If all were willing, all would be filled with the Holy Spirit when the Holy Spirit is poured out 10 years, 20 years from now. Is that what it says? Right now? My friends, the Holy Spirit is being poured out with power right now. It may not be latter rain Holy Spirit power yet, but it is wonderful power and it's being poured out in great abundance. If all were willing, all would be filled with the Holy Spirit, but we're not willing. We're like the rich young ruler. Did the rich young ruler want to be saved? Absolutely. He went out of his way to find Jesus and say, Lord, I want to be saved so bad and I know there's something wrong. I don't know what it is. Did he walk away with salvation that day? No, because he said, I'm not willing. I want it, but I'm not willing to receive it. It's the same way with us. We may want a closer relationship with Jesus, but be unwilling to make the radical commitment that that relationship entails. We may want to spend more time with him in the morning, but be unwilling to go to bed earlier so we can get up earlier and enjoy him more. We may really truly long to enjoy scripture, but be unwilling to deny ourselves the stimulating worldly entertainment that makes the Bible seem so bland by comparison. We may want to soar with God on the heights, but be unwilling to let him release all the weights that are holding us down. We may truly desire to be on fire for God, and yet be unwilling to let him turn off that cold water faucet that is making us lukewarm. You know what lukewarm is? Lukewarm is hot. There's a little bit of cold mixed in. Our nature is broken. We crave the things that are unhealthy, and by nature we fight God. And God is battling to bless us, and the only thing keeping him from blessing us is you and I. We fight him. And throughout history, God has been fighting this same problem. Isaiah says, Thus the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, has said, In repentance and rest you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. But, oh, I hate that word. But, you were not willing. Jesus cries out to us as he did to Jerusalem so many years ago. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were unwilling. We are at war with ourselves. Our selfish, sinful nature battles God as he fights to bless us. And that is why we are told that self is the enemy we most need to fear. No other victory we can gain will be so precious as the victory gained over self. My friends, self is the root of the problem. In another place, she says this, we have no enemy without, outside of ourselves, that we need to fear. Just a second here. How many enemies outside of our own selves do we need to fear? Not one. Not the devil. Not one. Our great conflict is with unconsecrated self. When we conquer self, we are more than conquerors through him who has loved us. My friends, now we know the root of the problem. The root of the problem is us. 
We are truly our own worst enemies. By nature, we fight God. So that's our key phrase this morning. Let's all read it out loud together. My natural self fights God. Self is the enemy I most need to fear. That's the statement I would like for you to get out of this morning's presentation. I'd like you to remember that statement. If you can remember that key phrase, the whole thing will make sense. If only we could understand that. Self is our number one enemy. Self is the root cause of every evil. Paul says that the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now that is a very impressive list of some of the self problems, but it is not a comprehensive list. Ella White once had a vision, and in this vision she says, Another book was opened, wherein were recorded the sins of those who professed the truth. Under the general heading of selfishness came every other sin. Now I want you to notice something interesting. Whose sins are we talking about here? Are we talking about the wicked, the atheist, the ungodly? No, we're talking about the sins of those who profess the truth. Under the general heading of selfishness came every other sin. Self is why our feathers get ruffled when the car behind us honks at us, even though we know it's our fault. Self is why we, are un we eat unhealthy food, even though we know it's unhealthy for us. Self is why we spend money and time wastefully. Self is why we say hurtful things to people that we love. Self is why we are jealous of people. It's why we criticize others. Self is why we are attracted to comfort at the expense of exercise. Self is why we do not love God as we might. Self is why fill in the blank. Self is the enemy we most need to fear. By nature, we are at war with God. That's the bad news. I promised you some bad news. Now, do you want the good news or do you want the really bad news? The really bad news. Wonderful. Great. The good news is coming this afternoon, 1.30. Please be here. The really bad news is that when we fight God, we win. Because of, because of our free will. When we fight God, we win. And that is tragic. Perhaps the saddest words in all scripture are these. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? This is God talking. This is the almighty God. This is the omnipotent ruler of eternity. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why, when I expected it to produce good grapes, did it produce worthless ones? Can't you just see in this passage an almighty God who is saying, what more? What more? What possibly can I do than what I've already done? The Lord, we are told, has no reserve power with which to influence man. No reserve power. My friends, there are seven wonderful things that you and I should know about God. One, he loves us more than we can imagine. Two, his patience with us is supernatural. Praise the Lord. Three, God is actively doing everything that he possibly can for you and I today. Now that should be encouraging, but should also be a little bit scary. God never gets tired. He never gets discouraged. And my personal favorite, God never makes mistakes. Ever. And lastly, God will succeed. He will succeed. He is, after all, the Almighty God. He will succeed if we let him.
The only thing keeping God from winning the battle is you and I. And if we want him to win, all we have to do is surrender and say, okay, Lord, I give you the battle. I surrender. I'm willing to die in your arms. I'm willing to open up the gates of the citadel of my life and let you be the ruler on the throne and you alone. And when we surrender, we win. The tempted one needs to understand the true force of the will. This is the governing power in the nature of man, the power of decision of choice. Everything depends on the right action of the will. Desires for goodness and purity are right as far as they go. But if we stop here, they avail nothing. Many will go down to ruin while hoping and desiring to overcome their evil propensities, but they do not yield the will to God. Everything depends on the right action of the will. And what is the only right action of the will? To lovingly, eagerly give it back to God. To yield it to Him. So that He can be Almighty God in us. When we fight God, we win. How many children, this is a good question for you, considering our children's story this morning. Children, how many people was God able to save on the ark when the flood came on the earth during Noah's time? How many people? I heard it. Eight. That's right. You guys all know this. Wonderful. How is it possible that of all the vast multitudes of people that lived during the, that time, how is it possible that God was only able to save eight? Did God try to save more than that? For 120 years, God did everything in his power to save more than that. Was there room in the ark for more than eight? Yes. How is it possible that God could save only eight? When, when uh, Sodom and Gomorrah were destroyed by fire, how many people was God able to save? Of that vast metropolis of people, the multiple cities there that were destroyed by fire, how many people was God able to save? Three. And he tried to save the fourth, didn't he? He took her by the hand and he led her outside of the city. But although God can take Lot's wife out of Sodom, he could not force Sodom out of Lot's wife. He was not able to save her. My friends, you and I serve a gentle God. An almighty, gentle God. A contradiction in terms. We serve an almighty, gentle God. Our God is like a giant who walks among ants without stepping on the smallest toes. Our God is like a mighty bull running through a china shop at full speed and not breaking the tiniest dish. Our God is an almighty, gentle God. We are told about Jesus that, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A battered reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not put out until he leads justice to victory. My friends, have you ever looked at a, at a smoldering wick? And if you get too close to it and you just have a little what happens? It's gone. But we are told that God is so gentle that he will not even break a battered reed or 
snuff out a smoldering wick. That is our gentle God. Perhaps one of the saddest word pictures in all the scripture is this one. In Revelation 3, where Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Can't you just feel the pathos in those words? The Almighty God, the ruler of eternity, is standing outside the door of our hearts. And what is he doing? He's knocking. Because that's all he can do. He is the Almighty God who wants to be Almighty in us, but he can't unless we let him. We have a knocking God. This painting is called The Light of the World, and there's actually a copy of it in St. Paul's Cathedral in London. And there's two interesting things about it. I'm sorry you can't see it better, but there's two interesting things about this picture. One is that there is no handle on the outside of that door. And the second thing that's interesting about it is that there's a lot of weeds and things growing up in front of the door. It does not look like that door has been opened for a while. My friends, does God need a handle to open a door? Does God need a handle to open a door? No! The little pinky, he could just blow it off its hinges. But our God is a gentle God. Our God is a knocking God. And that should encourage us. That's a wonderful thing, but it should also scare us a little bit. Because he's so gentle that if we don't give ourselves wholeheartedly to him, we'll miss him. We'll fight him as he battles to bless us. Self keeps us from opening that door to Jesus. Self keeps us tilted away from the sun of righteousness so that we live in a spiritual winter. That is why self is the enemy we most need to fear. No other victory we can gain will be so precious as the victory gained over self. My friends, self has got to go. No matter what the cost, no matter how radical the solution, self is the enemy we most need to fear, and self has got to go. On April 26, 2003, Aaron Ralston was walking through Blue John Canyon in Utah, and he was scrambling over boulders like this in these narrow little cracks in the earth, 15, 20 feet from the surface. And as he put his hand on one of those boulders, the boulder shifted, and it pinned his hand to the wall of the canyon. And for three days, while his food and water were running out, he struggled to get his hand free. He tried to shift the boulder, but it wouldn't shift. He tried to pull his hand out, but he couldn't pull it out. For three days, he struggled. Until at the end of three days, he ran out of food and water. He pulled out his pocket camera, recorded his last will and testament, and prepared to die. But Aaron Ralston did not die. He had a radical thought. There was a way. There was a way that he could be freed from this flesh that was pinning him to the earth. So he snapped the bones in the hand that was connected to that rock. He took out his dull pocket knife and he cut his hand off. It took him an hour. And the pain was so excruciating at times that he would nearly faint. But he came back and he was stronger than before. He says, I'm going to do this. I'm that much closer to being free. And he kept on going until he was freed from the flesh that would have killed him. 
Are you and I willing to do the radical thing? To be free of the flesh that is pinning us to this world? It will kill us. Are we willing to let God do the radical thing to free us from that flesh? What does Jesus say in Matthew 5.30? If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. Jesus is not saying that we should be mutilating our bodies. What he is saying is, do whatever it takes. Be willing to do the radical thing. Self has got to go, no matter what the cost. Are you willing? Are you willing to be free of the flesh? Selfishness is inwrought in our very being. It has come to us as an inheritance and has been cherished by many as a precious treasure. No special work for God can be accomplished until self and selfishness are overcome. I hope now we have a better understanding of the problem. That we see a little bit more clearly how wonderfully powerful and yet how gentle our God is. And my prayer for each one of us is that by God's grace, we will use the power of choice that he has given us to open ourselves to him wholeheartedly, 100%, so that he can free us. He can make us partakers of the the divine nature. He can free us from the flesh that is pinning us to this world. It's a radical decision. It's a radical life choice. We want it, but are we willing? Are we willing? Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, thank you that we can be free of our sinful nature. Thank you, Father, for that glorious good news that we can be covered by Christ's righteousness, that we can be infused by the Holy Spirit, that we can be free from the sinful nature. Thank you so much, Heavenly Father, that we can partake of the divine nature so that our natural response to you is we want to do your will, we want to go your way. I pray, Heavenly Father, in a special way that you will be with each person in this room. May we not leave this place today before committing ourselves wholeheartedly to you. May we make that choice, that radical choice, if we haven't already, may we make that choice to give you every aspect, every choice in our lives so that you can do everything you want to do in and through us, so that you can bless us and we won't fight you, not in the least. This is my prayer and this is my praise in Jesus' name. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.